Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. Now, today is our final episode of the year. We're going to talk about an eight-year-old getting an esports contract and take a look back at 2020, the year that was. But first, we're going to talk about Cyberpunk 2077 for just one more time before the year is over. I know there's been a few episodes in a row that I've been talking about Cyberpunk 2077, but we're going to talk about a lawsuit that was brought up against them on top of them finally letting us know exactly just how many copies they might have sold since launch. Now, in the statement to investors last week, now remember this was to investors, this wasn't like a big splashy public statement. CDPR estimates that Cyberpunk 2077 sold through 13 million copies after calculating brick and mortar and digital returns from its retail partners and including returns they've calculated through their internal Help Me Refund campaign. For those that don't remember, Cyberpunk or sorry, CD Projekt had put a December 21st date for their Help Me Refund campaign. So as of now, you can no longer go through CD Projekt in order to get help with a refund. Now, when PlayStation and Xbox both said that they would refund digitally, they they did not put a date on that. They just said that we would be doing it until further notice. And it's also interesting to note that Sony still has yet to put the game back on uh, the PlayStation Store. Now, there have been, ever since they took down the game... I think there have been two more patches to the game. There was 1.05 and then 1.06, I think, is the latest patch that we're up to. As I said, 1.05 and 06 seem to both be patches that mainly work to stabilize the game in order to stop the game from crashing and things like that. And it seems that it's been, once again, making the game very stable. So it's almost like a proof point that Sony is just very, very unhappy with CD Projekt Red with the fact that they removed the game. I don't think it's just about, well, this game is broken. I think it's more about they were very, very unhappy with the way that CDPR went ahead and just told people, yeah, go ahead, go get refunds and, you know, did it in this way to sort of make Sony look like the bad guy because they weren't honoring refunds. Now, do I think that that was like the big five head big brain plan from the very beginning like oh let's let sony take the blame i don't think that was totally their intent but i think someone might have thought that sitting around that room but they just said like oh you know just just kind of let it happen maybe that's that's probably what happened but 13 million copies i mean that would make it the uh i, I think it would make it the biggest rpg launch of all time i know they have argued whether this is an rpg or not but you know, uh, for the sake of just these numbers, I think the last one that held that record, I think, was Fallout 4. I'm not 100% sure. I felt very bittersweet seeing this, these numbers, because obviously a lot of them are probably reflected in the huge, huge launch that they had. Obviously, they had 8 million pre-orders. They were able to launch across, you know, four platforms, if you count Stadia. I'm sure things like NVIDIA GeForce Now also bumped up a lot of sales. It it gave people access to just a 
the the best version possible, which was that PC version. So I think the game was very set up for success. Obviously, Stadia was was running really well, according to a lot of people that used it from from uh, from Google service. But I sort of the the bittersweet part of it is obviously a, it shows how much of a huge launch they had, and it's. The bittersweet part of it is just the fact that if they would have just delayed this game, this would have been just complete gravy icing on top of the cake. And, you know, we would have been able to just sit here and celebrate City Project Red's accomplishment. And as I've said before in the show, my disappointment with, with that company is not the merits of the game. Like, I'm not sitting here telling people like, oh, no, no, you're not supposed to enjoy this game. I think there's a lot to enjoy about this game. I think it, there is a great game in there underneath all the bugs and glitches that I've encountered. I think it's more my disappointment is just the fact that the company blatantly just lied. <laughs> you know, there there's really is no other way to, to put it. And during my show last week, I had implied, you know, no pun intended, that you know, this could probably possibly get them in trouble. And it looks like that's what happened. So on last week's show, I brought up CDPR stock, where on December 7th, it was trading at $120.05. December 21st, it was $78.80. That's a 35% loss in 14 days. As of last Thursday, it is $74. That's about a 42% drop since the beginning of December. Now, that's a lot. <laughs> That's a 42% drop in less than a month is a lot when we're talking about the value of a company. Their CEO lost billions of dollars, and who knows how much their uh, individual and collective investors had lost just solely in the, in the month of December. And when you think about, once again, using hindsight, if this game were to be delayed, for some reason, let's say, like I said, in October was when they last delayed the game. They delayed it from November 19th to December 10th. If in October they would have said this game is not coming out to March, their stock would have definitely taken a dip, but it would have risen again throughout the rest of the year, especially with the fact that um, they would have kept advertising the game. They would have kept pushing it. Maybe they would have done, you know, committed to more regular updates in order to keep people updated, make them feel comfortable knowing that they're going to get the best game at launch. Obviously, the decision to not delay was sort of one of the big factors of their stock dropping this much within a month. When we're talking about a game that sold 13 million copies, to see their stock take that much of a hit, uh, I mean, it's pretty incredible. So last week we found out New York law firm, I hope I'm saying this right, Wolf Haldenstein, Adler, Freeman, and Hearst LLP announced an investigation of potential securities claims on behalf of shareholders of CD Projekt, resulting from allegations that CD Projekt may have issued materially misleading information to their shareholders and investing public. Now, they announced an investigation we found out last week that another New York-based law firm called Rosen Law, they went ahead and already filed a class action lawsuit in the Central California District Court on behalf of investor Andrew Tramp and others who bought CDPR Securities, a.k.a. stock, between January 16th of 2020 and December 17th of this year. 
Now, the firm alleges that the company either willfully omitted information and lied about the game's development or acted with reckless disregard for the truth, which consequently inflated the market price of those securities. Now, in the court filing, Rosenlaw writes, quote, had plaintiff and the other members of the class been aware that the market price had been artificially and falsely inflated by the companies and the individual defendants misleading statements, they would not have purchased the company's securities at the artificially inflated prices that they did or at all. So their claim or one of their overlying claims is that throughout the year, the CEOs and the board of directors at CD Projekt Red disseminated misleading information in order to inflate their stock price that's that's kind of a heavy-handed claim and maybe might be one that i think might be a little bit difficult to prove because you would have to prove that uh, they willfully willfully lie like they went to these investor meetings and and uh, it's kind of hard for me to explain it but that they sat in these meetings knowing they you know the board of directors met separately and said we can't let investors know how bad this game is or our our stock is going to tank or we won't be able to get our next round of investment we have to tell them that the game is fine now that's kind of is what happened <laughs> it, it sort of appears to be what happened but uh like I said, appearances and actually proving that that's what happened probably are, are two completely different things. Now, according to the suit, the lies began on January 16th of this year when CDPR released a statement announcing that Cyberpunk 2077 was, quote, complete and playable. However, the release date will be moved from April 17th to September 7th because the company needed more time to finish playtesting, fixing, and polishing. Now, we are, if you remember from... Last week's episode, I had brought up that during an internal employee meeting, an, an employee actually did bring up that January 16th statement where I think it was Adam Kaczynski who said it. I'm not exactly sure. I know it was definitely someone from their board had said on an investor call that the game was complete and playable. And an employee last during that call, what was it, two weeks ago, did bring that up. And he said, why would you bring that up when you know that that wasn't true? telling them that the game was definitely not complete and playable at that point. And obviously, <laughs> there's no reason for us to not believe that because the game that we got across all consoles, even though, you know, PC is the most stable one, is still, you know, kind of unplayable pretty much at this point because of how many bugs and glitches there were at launch. Yes, it's gotten better post-launch, but, you know, it still was not complete and playable. There's no way it was complete and playable. On January 16th, when the game that we got on December 19th <laughs> was in this condition. Now, they also bring up that in hindsight, the craziest declarations probably came on November 25th call. Per the suit, with two weeks left to go until the game's release, Adam Kaczynski, which is the CEO, said that the company believed the game is performing great on every platform. When asked about bugs, Zizki acknowledged that there were some, but they were minimal enough not to get noticed by players. Now, one thing I had brought up last week is that this is there definitely are grounds for a lawsuit in here somewhere. So it's interesting that this is coming up. This probably will not be the only lawsuit that we see. And I do think that investors kind of on the surface do have a 
pretty good lawsuit on their hands here because once again, for a company to lose that much value within a month amidst a successful launch, because at the end of the day, uh, commercially, it was a successful launch. Critically, it was still a success because the media was still giving this game nines and tens. Uh, for the for the PC version, which was the one that kind of rose to the surface, and it was the one that was reviewed at launch. So at launch, they had their ninety Metacritic. It was a commercial success, as we see, for them to have thir- to estimate thirteen million. Even if you give and take a million, two million there, we're still we're still talking about a game that sold over ten million dollars at launch. I mean, excuse me, ten million copies at launch, which is pretty amazing. Especially, like I said, with the fact that they had eight million pre-orders. Um, that's a pretty astounding number, and we know that a lot of that was digital because of what's happening right now with uh, COVID-19. So it's pretty crazy to see a company's value drop that much amidst an absolute commercial success that they've had. And it's pretty apparent that the company has been lying throughout the year. They were, they lied explicitly about the console versions. You know, one thing that these defendants, uh, excuse me, these plaintiffs can bring up is the fact that they did not show the Xbox One and PlayStation 4 version they did not um what else was it that they didn't do they said that those versions were good to go they can also bring up the fact that no you know no one in the media was able to review any of the console codes uh until like december 9th december 10th cd project red themselves on november 25th said the game's performing great but then after the release date on you know the week of december 14th when they were going through their apology tour they did bring up that the reason why media didn't get their console codes because they were working up to the last minute in order to make sure that day one patch was as stable as they could make it so there is a lot of sort of omission of the truth uh from cd project red especially given the fact that on december 14th or that week of December 14th, they admitted that they did not, that the console versions weren't ready, that the console versions were at the state that they were because they were not paying attention to those platforms. Um, which obviously, you know, it's unforgivable. No, nobody should ever defend any company. I, I don't care who the company is. Like one of my favorite publishers of all time, is Rockstar Games. If I find out that, you know, Rockstar at launch, the Xbox version is great or the PlayStation version is great and the other one wasn't and they said nothing, launched it, it was buggy and crappy and then in hindsight, they say, yeah, we really were only ver- focused on the PlayStation version, that's why. I definitely would not be very happy as a consumer, especially one that paid fifty nine ninety nine for a video game. It's um, It's not proper. And then, you know, another thing the plaintiffs could bring up is the fact that Sony had to pull the game. Obviously, all the mess that, you know, it's it's a lot to bring up. And obviously, a lot of it has to do also with uh, the violation of investor trust and then also the violation of consumer trust, which is, you know, at this point, I, I guess I'm just going to speak for myself. I would not trust anything that CD Projekt Red says, like... 
anytime they say this is happening, check out this date. We're gonna add this to the game. I'm just I'm just gonna you know just not trust anything that they say because it's obvious that they were very very comfortable with violating the trust of their consumers, their fans, their investors, kind of a, of of so many people in order to just launch this game. And what made it even weirder was the fact that Adam Kaczynski admitted that he felt no internal or external pressure to launch the game on December 10th. So even that statement is a lie in and of itself, because if you felt no pressure, I mean, what are you trying to say that as a CEO of the company, you had no idea this game <laughs> was this bad on, on two of the four platforms that you were launching on, I guess, if you count Stadia, uh, it, it's just, like I said, it's it's just lie on top of lie. And I think it'll be interesting to follow exactly where this goes. Um, if you're interested in terms of uh, kind of the legalities of all this, obviously this is very complicated stuff. You know, the law is definitely not the easiest thing to understand. Um, Hogue Laws is, is an amazing resource that I use when researching anything that has to do with legalities here i'll probably link one of his videos that he did to this it's like a 20 25 minute video but it really goes in depth in terms of you know you know what what a class action lawsuit for security violation looks like what it should be what some of the defenses may be what some of the allegations are so it's, it's a pretty cool resource that i'll uh i'll, I'll, I'll link to uh later today on my twitter now on to our next story, also coming to us from Kotaku. Esports organization Team 33 signed an eight-year-old Fortnite player named Joseph Dean. Now, apparently this signing had happened earlier in the month. It was something I wasn't aware of until Kotaku ran. This article is a really, really well-written article where they interviewed the kid, his mother, and the founder of this Team 33 to sort of dig into a question that probably a lot of people were asking themselves when they saw this, which was, how is it legal <laughs> to sign an eight-year-old to a professional esports contract? Now, apparently, they gave him a $33,000 signing bonus and a brand new $5,000 gaming setup and Joseph has been training with the team's Fortnite group since he was six, which just on the surface, like I, I, I'm going to say that's that's kind of weird <laughs> to be like adults training with a six year old. There's something that's a little off putting about that. I, I, I got to say now Team 33 is headquartered in Los Angeles, California. Apparently, the team is backed by high net worth investors, entrepreneurs and celebrity gamers. They even have a built-in music studio used by artists like Post Malone, Gucci Man, Diddy, Drake. And all this is on kind of their own website. Their, their website, I feel like a Team 33's website is definitely like one of those my shit don't stink kind of websites. It's definitely one of these like really highbrow, we have liquid money to spend kind of feelings when you go to that it's a very snobby kind of website, in my opinion. One of Team 33's founders, Tyler Gallagher, claims his own company, Regal Assets, is worth $1 billion. So apparently, this team has nothing but money to spend. Now, 
According to Gallagher, he believes the signing was legal because, quote, essentially there's no labor laws because he doesn't have to work. He's just gaming. He's waking up on Saturday morning or he's coming back from school at 5 p.m. and he's gaming with or without us. We're not flying him out anywhere. He's not entering tournaments. He's playing like he would play on Saturday or Sunday. We're legally allowed to give him money because we believe in him and we're making an investment. So what he's trying to say, this is more of like a, a first look contract, more so than a contract that stipulates, you know, things that he must do in order to maintain a proper contract or a two-way contract with a company. So on the surface, the way that I look at this in terms of the claims that if this is legal or not, number one, this team on the surface from from you know their appearances and what the, the claims that they're making the claim that his company is worth a billion dollars if we step into that arena then we have to believe that this man has access to a team of lawyers and he has money to spend if he's spending thirty three thousand dollars on a whim because this is sort of a whim no matter how good a kid is at eight years old it's still a child you never know if they're still going to be invested and interested in something like this. You know, children are very fickle. Who knows if this kid just decides he no longer wants to play Fortnite or he just no longer wants to play video games or he wants to take a different career path. Obviously, at eight years old, I think it's really weird for any kid to sort of be, you know, two feet planted on the ground saying, this is definitely what I want to do for the rest of my life. But I digress. They obviously have money to spend. So the way that I look at this is the question of is this signing if this is this signing legal? I'm pretty sure he had lawyers to make sure that this was legal when they when they put through that contract. I think probably the bigger question to ask is why is this legal? <laughs> More so than if this is legal. So they wouldn't divulge exact details of the contract, but Gallagher claims that no penalty was incurred if Joseph misses any weekend practice sessions with the rest of his team. If he is spending too much time gaming and not enough time on schoolwork, there's an option in the contract for his mother to break the contract entirely. Gallagher characterized it as a reverse contract. Now, also part of the contract negotiated by Dean's mother and her lawyer, on um, there's a contract stipulation on the hook to build up his YouTube presence. So basically, Dean's mother is saying part of the contract is that Team 33 is responsible of using their own resources to build up his YouTube presence. They will also train him in games like Fortnite and Call of Duty in their free time, enter him in tournaments, of course, ones that have no prize money on the line, and create and sell merchandise based on him. Team 33 will take a 33% cut of profits from his YouTube and merchandise, which Gallagher said will help cover, quote, all the things that we do marketing-wise, press-wise, building his presence, management of his social, all of that stuff. Should Dean exit the agreement, YouTube channel and merch will belong to Team 33, which I think is sort of a little bit weird. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess they would keep the YouTube channel up to collect revenue in perpetuity, but I guess selling merch based on him, I guess, would kind of be super weird. Then when Dean turns 13 and is able to begin competing, they get first right to refusal and either opt to renegotiate his contract or let another organization sign him so once he turns 13 that's usually the legal age to be able to enter Fortnite competitions i believe especially online tournaments and what that means is that when he wants to sign a contract 
you know, if at that time his skill level is still growing at the way that Gallagher thinks it will, then he must go to Team 33 first in order to get a contract from them. And they have the right to refuse. They have the right to say, you know what? No, we're not going to sign you. And then at that point, he can go to another organization. But he and his mother cannot just, you know, go to another team and negotiate a contract until Team 33 says, no, we do not want to sign you. That's basically what a right to refusal is. Um, Ryan Fairchild during Discord call with Kotaku said, if these situations don't work, at what point do you cross that line? My gut says that a commissioner of labor or secretary of labor would want to look at this closely and probably not like it, but I don't know what would stop somebody from doing it other than ethics or some commissioner of labor or secretary of labor coming out and saying, no, this is work. You can't do this. So basically what's being said is that unless this claim is brought to a commissioner of labor, a secretary of labor, so someone emailing those commissioners or secretaries or calling them up and telling them, hey, can you please look into this? This eight-year-old was signed to a contract. We think some laws are being broken and then them looking into it. Unless that happens, everything that they've done is legal up until this point. And I think the way that Team 33 looks at it is, you know what, if, you know, if we have to dissolve this contract, so be it, we took that chance. Or even if they lose those $33,000, that's like, that's probably baby money to them according to how much uh, they have invested into this team. Now, his mother claims schoolwork comes first. Uh, you know, according to Gallagher, members of the team began playing with Dean two years ago when he was only six. For a while, the kid thought he was squatting up with regular friends he made online, but in reality, they were actively scouting him, which is super, super weird. I'm sorry, that's there's no way that I would agree to something like that. That's extremely weird. I think that is crossing a line. There's nothing weirder than having adults scouting a six-year-old by tricking him to think that thinking that they're just his friends and they're playing online. Apparently, at some point, they did ask to speak to his mother, so I, I don't know how long they were playing with him until they came up to his mother and said, hey, we're scouting your Son, I don't know. That's just kind of weird to me. Uh, according to Gallagher, he makes a claim that the only reason it was a $33,000 signing bonus was to beat someone else that was trying to get him another massive team. Now, according to Kotaku that ran and wrote this article, they could not verify that claim. Uh, Gallagher would not tell them who the other team was. So they weren't sure that if it was something that he just sort of made up so we really don't know if there's really any truth to something like that if there really was another team that was uh, bidding for this kid now they also spoke to an employment attorney attorney natalie sanders who said which i thought this was very interesting she said if dean is receiving a percentage of money made off youtube ads and merchandise his efforts on behalf of the team are being rewarded monetarily through the team so that sounds like compensation for the work performed. If that's the case, then the Fair Labor Standards Act, which limits the number of hours minors under 16 can work, and California child labor law should apply. Moreover, if Dean's ability to make money is tied to the success of a YouTube channel and merchandise born of his personal brand, then according to Sanders, it would be unrealistic to say that his performance, whether he does anything or not, is irrelevant. And I think that's a very, very good point because if you remember... Team 33 only gets 33% of his YouTube ad revenue, 
which means that every time this kid games on Saturday or Sunday, that means that Team 33 has a content team set up that's going to take his streams, chop it up, chop it into different clips, put it out on his Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, create YouTube videos, edit it, create this compelling content. But that content can't exist if the kid, you know, isn't working on those weekends. So technically, even though they're saying like, oh, you know, Saturday and Sunday, he's just playing games. He's doing what he would normally do. This is just fun. Is it just for fun? Because now you're taking his clips and you're creating content around it. So technically, that content wouldn't exist if he wasn't playing, which sort of would imply that he is working in some way, shape, or form. So I think what's happening right now is that you had Team 33 with a team of lawyers. You had his mother with her own lawyer, and they worked together to make sure that this was working within the law. But it's almost like sort of like loophole law, like making sure that we don't cross a line. But ethically, I think the problem is that some of us are looking at this and saying, like, ethically, this kind of is kind of weird. You know, like a part of me is saying, like, oh, this is pretty great. I mean, I saw some gameplay of the kid. I mean, the kid is pretty good you know like I, I could definitely see why a team would look at him and say wow this kid definitely has potential if we're looking at a game like Fortnite that's going to continue to grow I mean they're they're making a bet on a kid that really won't pay off for another seven years so we they are, are saying that the full potential of this kid will not be realized until the year 2027 and they're they're you know, it, it's kind of crazy to see something like that. But also, I think from Team 33, they look at it as like a very low risk, high reward because $33,000, it does sound like a lot to give to a, a, a six year old kid, but excuse me, an eight year old kid. Sorry. So that would mean that 2025, it would, it would, it would pay off. Uh, that might seem like a lot, but it's actually not that much when you think about the potential money that they'll be able to make off of this kid in the long run, taking 33% of his merchandise and his YouTube revenue. And then obviously, once they renegotiate his contract, being able to to monetize his persona or whatever, what have you, and sort of begin to position him as like the greatest child gamer of all time or, 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 you know, whatever, what have you. Uh, look, this kid is eight years old. My nephew is five years old. And, you know, because of me, he loves video games. I definitely got him into to gaming and video games, but he's still a, a, a child. And I can't imagine kind of a kid being this much into a sport, any sport, you know, whether it's football, whether it's baseball, anything competitive um, to be put through that much pressure. And I think one of the issues that needs to be brought up is there's a problem with making a child think that, you know, hey, you're just playing for fun, but on the back end, you know, um, making him understand that this is not really just for fun. You know, like the game for him is no longer fun. 
now there is going to be some sort of pressure on his back, even if, you know, it's not this pressure coming directly from his mother or from his uh, from Team 33. There still sort of is this underlying pressure because now this kid is being put in this position where he wants to be the best. And, you know, he's getting signed and he's seeing the money that he's making and, you know, he's seeing all these articles being written about him and this big team, uh, you know, making it so he's literally the first person that they've signed to their esports team. It is a lot of pressure, even if it isn't direct pressure that you're putting on that kid. And I think that confusion with fun and work could become a potential problem in the future for this child. I I, I sort of do think it's kind of weird. Like, I, I, I will say that, like, uh, I do think it's, I still kind of sit here and think like, yeah, a kid needs to be allowed to be a kid. It does sort of look like his mother is very hands-on. It, it, from reading the article, it doesn't really come across like his mother is this, you know, czar who, you know, he finishes his homework. He's just like, okay, go play Fortnite, go get better to buy mama a new house. You know, I don't think that's really, it doesn't sound like that's um, the way she is, especially if there is a stipulation, a contract that says, hey, you know what, if I feel as a mother, the game is taking over, I'm going to cut the contract. So it does seem like his mother's being very responsible about it. And if she is responsible about it, I could see this going well. But, you know, just a few weeks ago, we found out about I found out about this six year old Call of Duty player named Rowdy Rogan, who went viral because his dad claimed that his Call of Duty account was banned. The kid was crying on TV. His father then admitted it was all fake and done in order to create a viral video as part of FaZe Clan's annual FaZe 5 competition. This was this was way weirder to me than this whole thing with Team 33. To see a six-year-old playing Call of Duty, first of all, the kid is an absolute monster at Call of Duty. I mean, it really does kind of look at one of those things. From a person like me that's been playing video games for a while that watches esports, that understands the mechanics of a first-person shooter, to see a six-year-old be able to have that type of hand-eye coordination and that type of mechanical skill in a video game at six years old, it, it is like you can use the words like wonderkind. Like it, it really is pretty amazing to see. That one is way different than the story from Team 33 because it does look like his father is like very strict with him. Even if obviously we don't see anything for parents to go that far to, you know, lie and say like, oh, his account was banned. And, you know, I I, I don't know that 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 kind of stank to me. That was really, really weird uh, to see. And it sort of like reminds me of those mothers of like kids who do like child pageants and things like that. I could see that being very very bad but obviously i'm not in their house i don't really know exactly how they raise their child i'm definitely not going to be the type of person who's going to sit here and tell a parent how to raise their child but honestly that's just super weird to me it's super weird to have this kid this child uh wanting to be part of face clan this father and mother who want him to be uh part of phase esports team that's super weird it's just as weird for phase to allow a six-year-old to make submissions to this con to this contest. I mean, that's just that's way too young to be part of a type of team like FaZe, which is you know skews more to like an older demographic. It's just it's it's just weird overall. I think it's weird to have a kid have that 
And then, and then to hear his father say like, oh, this has been his lifelong dream to be a part of Faith's Clan. The kid is six years old. <laughs> what kind what kind of lifelong dream is that? You, you've only been on this planet for six years, my guy. Like, that's ridiculous, you know? Uh, 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 the, the PS4's console cycle is older than you, and you're saying that your lifelong dream is to be part of Faith's Clan. That to me is even, you know, weirder. And all of this sort of reminded me of an an eight-year-old who his name was Lil Poison. And I instantly remembered this kid because he was a big deal during the Halo days. And he was one of he was the youngest kid signed to an esports organization. He was eight years old. And I kind of started thinking, what happened to this kid? Because the kid must be close to 20 years old. And I started looking, and it looks like the kid just doesn't really play game any, games anymore. He has a Twitch channel. Last time he streamed was like four months ago. His Twitter has like 200 followers. You know, it just looked like something happened along the way. And I do wonder if it was that pressure when he was a, a, a kid that maybe made him not really love video games anymore. So I think this is kind of a, a, a cautionary tale. I think it would be interesting to find out what happened to that kid, Low Poison. Uh, because it could serve as a cautionary t- tale for these parents that think that this is, you know, okay. And this is not just for esports, but just for sports and any activity in general. You know, six years old is really, really, really young um, to be thinking about professional athletic career of any sport. So for our final story of the week and the year, I wanted to talk about the year 2020 and just take a look back everything that happened this year because amidst everything awful that happened with COVID-19, especially here, unfortunately, in the United States of America, video games had their biggest year in history. Game spending and playtime rose across the board. COVID-19 lockdowns helped global gaming sales rise 20% to nearly $180 billion and made the video game industry a bigger moneymaker than the global movie and sports industries combined. You know, uh, we saw a surge in esports, global esports revenues grew 1.1 billion this year. That's a growth of over 15% from last year. Audiences grew 11% year over year from last year. So there are a lot of positive effects in terms of our industry obviously as people were locked down more and more people you know turned towards video games and i think what's interesting is that you know with a lot of streaming services and even services like xbox and game pass and us going into a brand new console generation i think our industry was in a good position to sort of take advantage of people wanting to stay home and find new things uh, to do because of the fact that, uh, you know, games can be purchased digitally. And even if you don't have access to hardware, there are still services like, you know, maybe your PC can run some games or GeForce Now and Stadia and things like this. So I just wanted to talk about a couple of different things that happened this year. So number one was Nintendo Switch continues its dominance. Last year, Switch surpassed over 52 million units sold. As of November 2020, Switch is over 70 million units sold, which is pretty incredible. Year to date. Dollar sales of Nintendo Switch hardware are the second highest of any platform in U.S. history. As of last month, Switch was the best-selling game console in the United States for 24 consecutive months, which is pretty insane. 
I'm sure once December is over, we're going to find out it's 25 consecutive months. Uh, obviously, PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X had a lot of issues with keeping things in stock. And obviously, we do not count resale. So uh, I'm pretty sure Nintendo Switch is going to find themselves having 25 consecutive months. And who knows when they're going to be uh, when that record is going to get taken away from them. Software sales for them were up 71%, which is pretty incredible. For those that remember, Animal Crossing was one of the first games that it launched just at the right time as the nation was going under lockdown. Sold more than 13 million copies in the first six weeks. Has sold over 26 million units in under a year. Only Mario Kart 8 Deluxe has sold more at 29 million. So we can definitely uh, see Animal Crossing surpassing that very, very soon. Super Mario 3D All-Stars sold over 5 million in under a year. Pretty amazing for a game that was announced, launched in a couple of weeks. It was comprised of three games where the youngest one is like 13 years old. That's pretty amazing to see. What's also amazing about Nintendo is that they only published 10 physical games in 2020, and five of those were remakes or re-releases. Tokyo Mirage Sessions, Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, Rescue Team DX, Super Mario 3D All-Stars, Pikmin 3, Deluxe. So five of their 10 published games were remakes or re-releases. Only two were developed by Nintendo. That was Animal Crossing and Clubhouse Games, 51 World War Classics. Three were published, but... Developed by third parties, we had Hyrule Warriors, Age of Calamity, Fitness Boxing 2, Paper Mario, The Origami King. It's almost like Nintendo proved that this year they could basically take almost a year off and just dominate throughout. They really didn't have a flagship title this year. The titles that we talked about the most were obviously Animal Crossing, but they didn't have a flagship holiday title. Age of Calamity was probably the closest that they had to that, but that really isn't something that I would consider like a flagship title. It wasn't one that exploded in sales. It really looked like Animal Crossing just kind of carried the system in terms of first-party releases throughout the year, but I think through 2020, Nintendo had probably their strongest year in recent history and we're talking about a, a a company just what we talking about like seven six seven years ago people were concerned about nintendo because of how awful the nintendo wii u was doing so it's pretty amazing to see nintendo make that turnaround i think it was a combination of them finally combining the success of the 3ds with their home console audience combining those two was probably one of the smartest decisions that the company has ever made in the history of nintendo you couple that with all the work that they did with their licensing department we saw an explosion this year of licensing deals with lego and you know levi and you know uh, i can't even think of anymore there were freaking so many it felt like every week there was a new partnership uniqlo and all these other companies champion also had one this year they kind of did a lot the puma sneakers so you know you kind of combine those two and they're just going to continue riding that momentum you know february is the opening of super nintendo world we're going to start to learn more about that mario film we're going to learn more about you know super nintendo world opening in florida and in in los angeles and obviously we're going to be hopefully on the other side of COVID-19 and, you know, that desperation of people wanting to go out, those parks are going to absolutely explode 
when it comes to their foot traffic. So Nintendo is really poised to continue everything that they've been doing. And it's just very, very interesting to see it happen. And, you know, to know that they have these games still in the pipeline, Metro Prime is still being developed. You know, we haven't seen Bayonetta 3 in a while. Breath of the Wild 2 hopefully will be out by holiday of 2021, I think will obviously be a huge title for them. So to see them continue this momentum and continue kind of their dominance of being this, you know, indie hardware, which, you know, I've been playing Hades on it and I will absolutely 100% agree with that. It's pretty amazing to see Nintendo doing that um, and definitely taking advantage of people being locked down and staying at home this year. Sony, Sony basically stuck to their formula. You know, PS4 has sold over 114 million. PS5 was Sony's biggest console launch ever, an estimated 2.1 to 2.5 million units sold if you combine both launch days. Obviously, there were a lot of negatives when it came to the gray market, but now that Christmas is over, we're going to see those stocks begin to normalize. The resale price is probably not going to be reaching $1,000 per unit anymore. I've seen it drop to around 700 through 800 for resales right now. But we're probably going to start seeing uh, restocks going into, you know, probably I think February, uh, maybe late February will be the, the point where, you know, you won't have to be too crazy um, you know, following links and things like that and having your carts collapse. Hopefully that happens. Now, Sony stuck to its strength this year. Amazing first-party exclusives. For the calendar year of 2020, they had Dreams, Final Fantasy VII Remake, Last of Us Part Two, Ghost of Tsushima, Spider-Man Miles Morales, Astro's Playroom, Sackboy Big Adventure, Demon's Souls, all in a single calendar year. Pretty amazing. The fact that Final Fantasy VII, Last of Us Part Two, and Ghost of Tsushima were basically game of the year contenders for that to come from one platform in a calendar year is pretty amazing uh the other thing that playstation did well this year is their value proposition basically convincing people that hey if you buy playstation 5 you know don't even worry about the year 2021 we have amazing uh games throughout the entire year Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, we're expecting by spring of 2021. Horizon Forbidden West, we're expecting that to be a holiday 2021 title. God of War 2, they talked about 2021. I do think that that game, even if it's ready, should not come out till 2022. I think that should be an early 2022 title. I think that would be amazing. Unless you could get Horizon out a little bit earlier, October, and have God of War 2 in November. That would be amazing too. Gran Turismo is supposed to be out before the spring. Final Fantasy 16, we know, is being developed. Returnal, it's supposed to be out early next year. They have Deathloop and Ghostwire Tokyo coming out next year. One-year exclusives. Project Athia, also from Square Enix, they have a 24-month exclusive. I think they've done a great job with convincing people, like, hey, if you buy PlayStation 5 this year, you're going to get a lot of great value going into next year because throughout the year we're going to have a lot of great exclusives even one of my games i'm looking forward to kenna bridge of spirits it's not a ps5 exclusive but it is a sony console exclusive so i think they've been making a lot of great moves in terms of being smart of where they spend their money in order to to get an exclusive except for that spider-man money on avengers obviously that one <laughs> didn't really pay off since so no one's really playing that game anymore um, but this year they stuck to their traditions. They believe in traditional ways to play. 
uh, Sony has still not gone all in in terms of cloud gaming, in terms of matching Microsoft's Game Pass with having their first party titles there day one. I don't think they ever will match that. Uh, or in the short term, they definitely won't match that. Do I see them doing it at some point in the future? I think I think their software numbers will have to take a really big hit for them to even consider that. I think Sony is very, very comfortable with where they're at. Their first-party software always sells really, really well. If we remember, Ghost of Tsushima uh, set a record for a, a brand-new IP debut. Last of Us Part Two probably shattered records also. So I think Sony is very, very comfortable where they're at, and I don't think they want to just kind of eat into those profits just yet. And honestly, they really don't have to you know microsoft didn't really have that issue uh where they had so many first party successes that they didn't don't they didn't know what to do sony has that so for them to sort of start giving away for free at launch it just doesn't make any sense i like what they've been doing in terms of picking and choosing so for them to have destruction all-stars as part of playstation plus i think was a really really good move and i think they can sort of reach back now because they have so much great first party and put that on PlayStation Plus at some point. I think it's good that they can cycle through that. I think their sort of their bench is so strong that they can do that where in March or April they can put Sackboy on PlayStation Plus. I think that would be really, really smart in order to once again continue that value for PlayStation Plus. And I think they prove once again that software sells hardware. That's really why the PlayStation 5 did so well this year. Xbox probably had, I, I think all three of them had the best, um, their best years in recent history, but I think Xbox was the one that had sort of that best brand improvement this year. You know, they went all in on Game Pass, currently available in 41 countries. In April, they announced that Game Pass had over 10 million members. Uh, that's less than three years after it debuted in June 2017. Within three years, Xbox was averaging about 3 million new members per year. Then in September, they announced they had 15 million subscribers. That means that their average went up to 1 million per month. So think about that. They went from 3 million per year to averaging about 1 million subscribers per month. And now we're thinking about the introduction of Xbox Series X and especially Xbox Series S, which is $300, is digital only. That console is handcrafted to take advantage of Xbox Game Pass. Who knows how many more subscribers they've been able to line up. I would not be su su surprised, I've been saying this, if they reached um, over 20 million by the time, you know, March 2021 rolls around. Um, you know, this was also in September they announced Probably the biggest gaming news we heard all year, which was that they purchased ZeniMax Media and Bethesda Softworks for $7.5 billion. That gives them instant control of Doom, Quake, Wolfenstein, Dishonored, Elder Scrolls, Fallout, the upcoming Starfield. I mean, just, I, I, I still can't believe that this move, it's been months since we heard about this, but I still can't believe this was such a big deal. You know, once that sale closes next year, every single one of those games will become permanent parts of Game Pass. EA Play was added in November at no additional cost. They also launched xCloud on Android in 21 countries. It's coming to PC and iOS next year. So I think this was the year that, that you know, 
Microsoft saw their investment pay off. They invested all this time and money into their Azure technology. Um, they invested all this time and money into Game Pass because Game Pass is kind of a burn rate type of product. You know that you're going to burn money going into it uh, and then for it to finally pay off. According to Phil Spencer, he, he believes that they've been able to finally stabilize Game Pass to the point where they're ev they either... Um, and this is conjecture for me. I don't think this was officially said by Phil Spencer, where they're either breaking even or making some sort of profit. And it's only going to grow as they continue uh, to, to, to add compelling software to it. We saw a lot of great things added to it this year. You know, things like No Man's Sky, Red Dead Redemption 2 was there for a little while. They added all those Yakuza games, Kingdom Hearts. There's so many great games that are on there and a lot of great games that were on there day one. You know, um, Halo Infinite was obviously delayed to fall 2021. That was probably their big disappointment for the year. Um, that was I think the only misstep that Microsoft had all year was the fact that they showed Halo Infinite. I think for them to internally realize like this is probably not ready to be seen just yet, it was almost like they were in denial. I think that's really what 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 went wrong at Microsoft. The fact that we 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 all saw the the same game that they were ready to present this and we all just went wait a minute. This is what you guys have been working on, comparing this to everything else that we've seen, either coming out this generation or what we what we would expect from next generation, especially because of what Sony had shown. The fact that you guys were very confident in showing this off uh, was pretty surprising to see. And once again, the fact that the game has now been delayed almost a full year from, from the point that they showed it. It's proof that obviously the game was definitely nowhere near ready. So I don't understand why they even showed it. They should have just been very honest to say, look, unfortunately, it's not ready and just delayed it. It's, it. It was definitely one of their major mistakes of the year were to actually show that game. It just really didn't make any sense. Now, the other thing that they gained ground in this year was plugging their biggest hole, which is compelling exclusive software. So we have in January, we have starting in January, we have the Medium, Scorn, The Ascent, The Gunk, which are all these great third-party games. Hellblade 2, Everwild, Avowed, Fable, State of the K3, Forza Motorsport, Perfect Dark. Uh, you know, after Psychonauts comes out in 2021, whatever Double Fine is working on next. So, you know, and that's not even talking about Bethesda. For Bethesda, we're expecting Starfield to be. Uh, released next year it looks like they're ready to start talking about that game in june 2021 and uh bethesda and todd howard in general uh one thing that i love about todd howard howard is that he shows the game when it's ready to show and he usually ships there right after if you think about fallout 4 that's exactly how their rollout was it was rumored for a while they finally showed it talked about it and in that same calendar year the game was released so it's not too far-fetched to think that Starfield is ready to be finally shown. And I do think that this game will become an Xbox exclusive. Um, basically because of the fact that it is a brand new IP. And it is coming from, from Todd Howard and his Bethesda's first brand new IP in a very long time. 
I do think that this is one that if I'm Xbox, I'm saying, no, 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 I want this one all to myself. So even though I've said about like, you know, the possibility of Elder Scrolls being a time exclusive, maybe coming to PlayStation at some point, I do think Starfield will remain an exclusive. So Xbox this year was able to finally do something that they haven't done in a while, which is give people hope in terms of, hey, we do have a lot of great exclusive software coming in 2021 and beyond i think the only problem that they have right now is that we haven't really seen most of these games we haven't seen hellblade 2 ever basically their whole first party internal studio uh slate perfect dark all these games sound great but we haven't actually seen them i think that's a problem and i think the issue was that because of what happened to halo infinite i no longer have that utmost confidence in their studios because when you think about the fact that 343 was working on this game for years and this is what we saw, that's very alarming. And to me, Perfect Dark sounds great on the surface. It sounds like it's in good hands. I really like the direction that they're taking the series. But once again, I want to see it. That Fable trailer had that classic Fable humor. But I want to see it. I think the only one that I trust is Avowed because that team delivered when it came to Outer Worlds. And they delivered in the plat in the past. So when they showed what Avowed was, I was like, okay, I kind of do trust you guys. So when it came to 2020, when you think of Game Pass, when you think of xCloud, a $300 next-gen console, Xbox All Access, I think that this year Xbox did exactly what they wanted to do. Definitely a lot of credit needs to be given to Phil Spencer. I think that he really sort of had a vision for for Microsoft. He understood that he thinks that the future is really in digital distribution. And the fact that by the end of this year, you'll be able to, to pay $15 a month and experience Game Pass across various platforms, PC. Uh, you know, there's they're hinting very strongly that they'll be able to bring an application on Samsung TVs. I know that's been some, something I've been saying for years. It just makes a lot of sense to be able to do something like that. I don't know how they would make the controller work. I, I, I don't know if Samsung TVs already have that. I don't know how they would make that work. But um, obviously, they're going to come up with some sort of, of, of solution. The fact that next year, Game Pass will be able to you'll be able to stream Game Pass games. So, you know, a new Game Pass game shows up. You don't want to wait to download it. You can stream it and maybe even download it in the background while you're streaming and playing the game. So I think breaking down those barriers were, was Phil Spencer's goal, and I think they really started marching towards that this year, especially given the fact that you have a, the Xbox All Access where people are paying $30, $35 a month and have access to Game Pass, especially when you think about that $300 console it is digital only. So to be able to give people this amazing option of paying $15 a month and know that all these games that I just listed will be there day one on top of these amazing third-party deals that they've been able to make. They've been able to bring a lot of great games to Xbox Game Pass. I think their future is looking really, really bright. And I think what's interesting is that it's almost like a play out Nintendo's book, which is we're just going to go our own way. While Sony is still very much focused on um, hardware, Microsoft is saying, I really, it's cool if you buy the hardware, that's great, but I actually just want you to 
get into the Xbox ecosystem and just play wherever you want to. And I think both of those strategies are working for their individual companies. I think other things that happened in 2020, digital events was was obviously big this year. Our industry was uniquely positioned. I think they were very hit or miss throughout. Obviously, it's kind of growing pains, but I think we will see this continue to grow. I think E3 will be will continue to become a fan destination in the future. I think more and more companies are going to stop having giant footprints or like these big this big presence in E3 and probably turn more towards, you know, disseminating information digitally throughout the year as we've seen Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft do this year and I think it it, it really worked for each of them. Uh, what else happened this year? Work from home. Work from home can change the way development happens. You know, work from home was rarely used as an option because of confidentiality within our industry. That's one positive change that we can see happening. I had spoken about it a few episodes ago in terms of this can be great for employment going in the future for people not to feel so worried about losing their job and being forced to move, for example. Uh, this year, we also saw the Black Lives Matter movement and the importance of people of color in our industry. Obviously, I had a huge episode about that. I did express that I don't think our industry did enough. And honestly, it kind of does look like it's been a bit forgotten, uh, to be very, very honest. But there were some people that definitely really put their best foot forward. Shout out to Kind of Funny. I think Kind of Funny did a great job when it came to highlighting voices of color throughout the year. And I, I, I do see them continuing to do it. So it's, it's great to see a podcast doing something like that. I think it's very, very important. What else happened this year? Multiplayer seemed to be more important than ever, and especially lowering that barrier of entry, which is something I've been talking about for years. So we saw Valorant launch that's free to play, Call of Duty Warzone free to play. We saw a rise in what I'm calling experiment, experimental multiplayer. So multiplayer that's not in the traditional sense, but one that is the cause for a lot of communication. It's almost like we saw a lot of games come out or a few multiplayer games come out this year that almost took the concept of physical board games and that communication that's required for physical board games and brought it into software. So that's what we saw from Phasmophobia and that's obviously what we saw from Among Us. Fall Guys also introduced sort of an interesting twist to, full, to, to, to multiplayer. Among Us was, without a doubt, the biggest surprise of the year. It's a bit tough to calculate exactly how much that three-person development team at Intersoft has generated, but some estimates say over 50 million Steam users have downloaded it. You combine this with mobile revenue, Among Us has generated easily over $100 million this year. $100 million. There's three people in that development team. I mean... That's that's definitely why you saw how happy they were to, to, to get their game awards. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Among Us is probably, it's definitely an amazing example of opportunity as preparation meets luck. Because this game exploding was a lot of luck. But they were prepared to, you know, take that on. And you look at a game like Fall Guys, which released this year compared to something like Among Us, which was released two years ago. And that team was ready for the challenge of 
servers being overloaded. They were ready for the challenge of, you know, being able to create a custom game, which was something that Fall Guys wasn't able to to, to do. So I think that's why you saw Among Us sort of be able to sustain that, you know, that momentum, which is something that Fall Guys was not able to do. Another thing that happened in 2020 is the value of a Twitch streamer has essentially now risen. All these Twitch streamers, their price is going to go up in the year 2021. You know, the ebb and flow of game marketing now, it kind of seems to flow right through streamers and content creators because the best ad is one that comes from a quote unquote trusted source. You know, the best way to sell a product is to get someone to recommend it. And they, it, what was weird was that streamers also dictated when it was time to ditch a game. You know, Fall Guys averaged 152,000 viewers in August, but in November, they only averaged 7,335. And the reason why was because Among Us took over. They averaged 204,000 viewers in September, 107,000 in November. But the difference between those two is because, once again, Among Us lets you make your own lobbies. You can put eight streamers into a room, and this is something that Fall Guys has yet to be able to do. And, I mean, I don't I don't blame them. Once again, Among Us, those developers, this game existed two years ago. They were already on two different platforms, being on mobile, and they're poised to continue growing. We saw them releasing on Switch. They brought the game to PC Game Pass in 2021. They're going to release on Xbox. At some point, it's going to you know, be on Sony systems at some point in the middle of next year. Fall Guys development team don't seem poised to be able to do something like that. It's still only been stuck on PC and PlayStation. Among Us, they made an absolutely smart decision to not create a sequel. They had talked about making a sequel. You know, Very, very good for them that they didn't do that and just focused on Among Us, the original. Um, you know, these stats combined with lowering the price of entry into a game show basically how fickle maintaining a multiplayer audience can be. This is kind of one of the things that I've personally been worried about with our industry and the way that it's going is that as you lower the price of entry for a game, as you lower the barrier of entry, what you do is you make it that much easier to ditch and throw away a game like a gamer would stick with a game for much longer if they paid $60 for that game. When you think of Among Us, you're talking about a game that was $5 for, for Steam. It was sometimes on sale for $4. If you're playing on mobile, it's actually free to play. When you think about Valorant, when you think about Call of Duty Warzone, the upcoming Halo Infinite going free to play. When you talk about free to play, you know a lot of these conversations are dictated by Twitch streamers in, in order to, to continue those sales. One of the few games that has been able to maintain a momentum is Fortnite. And that's because Fortnite has set up the blueprint and any, and I mean any game being released for the future has to study Fortnite because Fortnite has been the only free-to-play multiplayer game. Excuse me, I'm not gonna say the only one. I don't think that's right to say that. But they're definitely, in my opinion, the kings when it comes to maintaining momentum. And I don't mean just player count. I also mean momentum in terms of we're still talking about Fortnite. We're consistently, consistently throughout the year 
talking about Fortnite. And that's because Epic Games has leveraged other brands. You know, they'll have the Star Wars event. Now, now, now there's DJs playing. Now we have Tenet, uh, the trailer. Now we're showing a Christopher Nolan movie. Now Wolverine is in the game. A few weeks later, well, now Black Panther's in the game. You know, they did all this stuff, and all of it is done to continue that momentum. If you look at uh, Fortnite's Twitch viewership throughout the year, you see these natural peaks and valleys, but they always maintain, you know, they've never gone that low, you know, as some of these other games. Obviously, they, they've had more time to build their audience. They're across so many different platforms, but a lot of it is because they're consistently and constantly updating the game. And Epic Games is in a position to do that. Unfortunately, for some of these other games like Fall Guys, for example, it's something that you have to build into your development cycle from the very beginning. You have to have a roadmap. You have to have seasons. You have to be able to leverage other brands and have skins now in order to bring people back in. It's so important going forward. And Among Us has actually been able to do that. Now they have a new map. At some point, who knows? Maybe they might do, you know, created maps. They can now, you know, pay streamers and have, you know, an official, you know, you know, maybe they start a campaign where, you know, <clears throat> when they're able to introduce player creative maps, they pay, you know, Ninja, Tim the Tatman, you know, Dr. Lupo, Corpse. They pay all these people to create their own, you know, levels that other people can download. There's so many ways that they can leverage Twitch streamers. And now they definitely have the money to do it. What else happened in the year 2020? Mobile gaming hit a brand new level. Consumer spending on mobile passed $100 billion. Five mobile games generated more than $1 billion, including $2.6 billion from PUBG and $1.2 billion from Pokemon Go. This is definitely the reason why Apple will not allow a Game Pass Stadia-type service. This is why these services are probably going to have to continue going through the web browser. Genshin Impact became one of the biggest mobile launches of all time, over $500 million in revenue in less than three months. Among Us surpassed $275 million. Uh, the negative of the year was Fortnite. Fortnite played with fire. Epic Games played with fire, and they got burned. They still haven't returned to iOS, which obviously was a grave mistake on their part. They definitely could have had their cake and ate it too. They did not approach that lawsuit in the proper way and they're they're definitely I'm, I'm telling you right now they're definitely regretting that move they're definitely losing a lot of money by not having that game on ios now they could add it to cloud streaming which also grew this year now geforce now debuted in february 2020 they were overwhelmed when cyberpunk 2077 launched a few weeks ago a lot of people realized their systems weren't able to run it geforce now actually had to stop sales of their founders pack which allows you to skip the line uh when trying to stream because streaming through their service is done in sessions you can only do like a one to four hour session or something like that before you have to get back online xcloud launch is september uh, followed by Amazon Luna. We saw them uh, enter cloud gaming along with Facebook, which obviously wasn't as big as anywhere else. Google Stadia announced they're finally coming to iOS next year. They saw a rise in popularity among console players looking for an alternative to the horrible console experience of Cyberpunk 2077. We saw Control debut on Nintendo Switch via cloud. Hitman 3 will follow next year. So I think a lot of things this year were just accelerated because of the lockdown and cloud streaming 
just saw its growth accelerated. Services like Game Pass saw their growth accelerated as people found alternatives to not having to buy, you know, an entire console in order to play games online. You know, once Game Pass is able to come to iOS next year, once they're able to do PC streaming, once they're able to start streaming on TVs next year, that is just going to continue to accelerate because of the fact that, especially with Game Pass, you pay $15 a month um, and you can just play games anywhere at any time. Uh, it's pretty amazing, but it's also something that we've been seeing other services and other you know, publishers and developers and consoles and platforms be able to take advantage of cloud streaming. This is the year that we're going to look back at and, and, you know, seven years from now when cloud streaming and, you know, digital downloads are normal, we're going to look at this year as, you know, a big turning point in this technology. Uh, what else was accelerated? Fortnite. Fortnite's virtual entertainment proof of concept was accelerated this year. They, we saw Fortnite continue their global events. They tested new areas such as live music and films. And now Fortnite has all the data they need in order to continue their proof of concept towards the metaverse that they're trying to create. So Travis Scott's astronomical concert that happened this year had over 12.3 million concurrent players participating watching live and then Forbes reported that that event alone generated about 20 million dollars including merchandise sales now Travis Scott's entire 56 stop Astroworld tour generated about 53.5 million dollars that averaged to about 1 million dollars per show which is pretty freaking amazing when you think about the fact that this this event which what they had like three four maybe five different showings was able to generate 20 million dollars including merchandise sales that's for lack of a better term astronomical and when you think about the data that epic was able to use and the fact that going to 2021 they're now going to be able to sell this service to others and be able to go to Ariana Grande's team or, you know, go to Drake and say, hey, how would you like to debut your new album in Fortnite or something like that and be able to generate this type of revenue? They're basically showing the world that even when physical locations shut down, digital locations never, ever shut down. So they have a very, very high ceiling to go. And this year just accelerated that proof of concept that they've been trying to create. The other thing that we saw this year was a digital sales boom. Digital sales back when PS4 and Xbox One launched in 2013 were actually only 5 to 10% of total yearly game sales. This year, digital surpassed physical sales for the first time in history and reached over that 50% threshold. What's actually amazing was that this didn't happen because physical sales dropped. Physical sales were also still growing. It's just digital grew at a much more rapid pace this year, obviously because of the fact that people weren't able to go out, but that didn't stop people from getting physical games. People were still ordering physical games to be delivered to their homes, but digital was definitely pushed this year. I keep bringing up this number, Cyberpunk 2077, 8 million pre-orders, 73% were digital uh, you know, we had Sony and Microsoft both release digital only consoles. Now, the industry is becoming more and more confident that digital sales will continue to outpace physical. You know, this is definitely what these companies want more than ever. 
Do I personally think that Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 are the last physical consoles ever? No, I do not think. I think that we will see if these two manufacturers create PlayStation 6 and Xbox Series, whatever the hell Xbox decides to name the next one. I do think that we will still have physical. I do think that we will have at least one more cycle until these companies start going completely digital. And I, for one, will buy physical until they rip it from my cold, dead fingers <laughs> because I definitely am a person that does not like to buy digital. I want to buy physical. You know, we've seen so many retailers become so aggressive with their pricing. Uh, Immortal Phoenix Rising came out at the beginning of this month and for the past two days has been $29.99 across various retailers, Amazon, Best Buy. So... But if I go to Stadia, it's still $59.99. If I go to Xbox and PSN, they're still over 50 bucks. So physical is still where it's at, in my opinion, if you're trying to be fisc fiscally responsible. And that was it. That's 2020 really in, in review when looking back at it. I think that the biggest thing that we can take away from our industry going this year is just the fact that what happened this year caused our industry to accelerate along with other in industries. We, you know, the film industry has wanted more than ever to go more and more digital. And we've seen now that they no longer have these movie theaters to, to almost sort of blackmail them and hold something above their heads in order to be able to get films to hit digitally a lot sooner. And I think our industry is poised to be one to really take advantage of a year like this because of what our industry has been building in terms of streaming and cloud technology going forward. So I think more so than not, we're going to look back at this year as the year that accelerated a lot of the things that our industry has been naturally moving towards. You know, we are the last entertainment industry when it comes to having digital overtake physical because of the fact that games are just so large. It hasn't been something that's very easy to do. But the fact that now we're moving into streaming technology, the fact that consoles are now embracing preloading, you know, even, even on my Xbox Series X right now, the medium comes out in January, but I already have it preloaded on my Xbox. So things like that, normalizing those type of practices will make it a lot easier for uh, all of these different industries to move towards digital. And we're definitely going to see Nintendo be the last one <laughs> to do that. We know how slow Nintendo is to do anything. So I think Nintendo will continue using game cards uh, for the foreseeable future. I, I don't see them going completely digital only anytime soon. Time. Uh, well, this week's hot releases it's funny, so when I was putting together this show, I looked at my script for my 2019 uh, review show last year, and those week's hot releases are the same as this one, which is this week's hot releases are your back catalog because there's really nothing significant to talk about. You know, this is a great time to catch up on any games you may have missed. Now time to wrap it up. The stories we didn't have time to get to. Halo Community Manager at 343, John Junizek, 
once again denied rumors that Halo Infinite for Xbox One was canceled. It looks like Microsoft is holding steady to this ship that they are going to release it on Xbox One. I think what's going to be interesting, though, is I could see Microsoft sort of maybe releasing for Xbox One. But when we think about next year, the fact that they, Game Pass streaming is probably going to be possible on the Xbox, I could see a good, compelling argument for why it shouldn't be released on Xbox One, but, you know, to each of their own. Sony Picture CEO Tony Vincent Kara told CNBC that the studio is working on three movies and seven TV shows, all based on PlayStation's video game content. Now, we know that Uncharted and Metal Gear Solid to be two of those uh, three films, and then Last of Us to be one of those seven shows. I think Sony, out of all of the big three that we're talking about, Sony, Microsoft, and uh, Nintendo, they are in the best position to take advantage of of this boom that we're about to see. We're definitely about to see an explosion within the next five years of video game content being turned into films and into TV shows. And hopefully we see more companies do what PlayStation has done and even what Ubisoft started to do after you know the disastrous Assassin's Creed film and the Prince of Persia film, which is taking more control over that content. And... Um, it's going to be interesting going forward because now we have a lot of like big players and a lot of big names finally beginning to understand that the stories that are being concocted in video games, you know, can can spar with the best of the best when it comes to Hollywood. And I think I'm going to cry a tear of joy the day that uh, a video game film or video game TV show takes the biggest award at one of these Hollywood shows. I think I'm going to definitely cry tears of joy because that will definitely happen within the next few years or definitely within the next decade. Uh, my wishes, please, for the love of God, Sony, turn do something with Ghost of Tsushima. An anime or live-action TV series will be amazing and definitely give us a God of War film. You guys can definitely make it work. And that's it for our show. That's it for the year 2020. If you're listening to this, you made it through this crazy, crazy, insane year. I definitely want to say absolutely thank you, thank you, thank you so much to anyone that has listened to Camp Koji throughout this year, anyone who has shared it, anyone who has liked, uh, given us a review on you know any of these podcasting platforms. Uh, please, I could definitely use more reviews on <laughs> Apple Podcasts. I haven't had a review on there for quite some time. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please uh, leave us a review on that uh, service. It definitely helps us out. Uh, but definitely, thank you guys so much for for listening. This is definitely a joy to be able to do every week. It's definitely not easy to talk to yourself every, <laughs> every week. It's definitely difficult. I, I don't know if you guys hear it when you guys hear the episodes. It's definitely easier when I have someone like Val on and I have someone to talk to. It's uh, it, it definitely feels a lot more natural. It's a little tough to talk to yourself every single week, but um, thank you guys so much for 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 listening. I think next week we will not have an episode unless something super crazy happens. I did this last year. I missed the first episode of the year, and I thought it worked out great. So unless something really insane happens this week, 
I don't think we're going to have an episode next week. We're going to take a week off and we'll I'll see you guys when is when is the next week? I have to look at the calendar. January 11th will be the the first show of the year. 2021 thank you so much for joining me please follow us on twitter and instagram at can code you future update once again i'm joel happy new years to everyone and i will see you in 2021